Let's spread a song so you can sing along with a special guest or two. Or two. You like to sing and dance, and this podcast by chance explores musicals for you. everyone, welcome back to another episode of Life's But a Song, a podcast that likes to live in the land of musicals. I'm your host, John, and with me today is a very special returning guest. He is the host of the Cult Musicals podcast and the curator of Cult Musicals on Instagram, and he's a friend of the pod. He's been on a couple episodes. It's James Rees, everyone. Howdy. Hi. And fun fact, when I contacted James to be a guest on this podcast, he was like, we need to do three movies. We need to do Shock Treatment. We need to do Best Little Horrors in Texas, and we need to do The Phantom of the Paradise. And I went, yes. So here we are, finishing off James's original trilogy, Phantom of the Paradise. Uh, yeah. The movie came out in 1974. It was written by Brian De Palma and an uncredited writing credit by Louisa Rose. Uh, music and lyrics by Paul Williams, directed by Brian De Palma. And according to IMDb, a disfigured composer sells his soul for the woman he loves so that she will perform his music. However, an evil record tycoon betrays him and steals his music to open up his rock palace, the paradise. Very 70s. Very 70s. And God bless the 70s for them just like experimenting with movies and everything. Well, most of the cult musicals that we admire have sprang from the 1970s, early 80s, but we can get into that later. Um, so have you, you've seen Phantom of the Opera, uh, or, or some sort of iteration of it? Well, I've read the novel Phantom of the Opera, and then of course I've seen the, the West End musical with Phantom of the Opera, but, um, Angela Weber's not that original, you know, most of his ideas are lifted from local stories or, or novels. Oh, um, he's yeah, uh, well, I was just, I was just saying, because like, I mean, this is obviously a riff off of that combination of the novel of phantom the parrot uh phantom the opera and the story of faust which is you know the right. man who's called the devil and then there's sprinklings of like um dorian gray um yes. kind of the little mermaid if you will uh, there i mean there could definitely be that i think it's more phantom and faust and i guess all those horror gothic novels that you know are sprung together in gothic stories Retold through 70s lens. I only mention Little Mermaid because um, uh, Phoenix, played by Jessica Harper, which, welcome back to the podcast, Jessica Harper, um, (sighs) makes a deal with Swan about her voice. That's the only, that's really the only connection that I made. And plus, it's my favorite movie, but thank you for mentioning that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do you know where this is supposed to take place? Um, Los Angeles, I believe. I was I was just confused because I was like it could be L.A. It could be New York, Chicago maybe. I feel like I mean, at least it's a city, a metropolitan city. But I believe it's L.A. Because the only reason why I thought it was New York because Sing Sing, the prison that they go to, is in New York. Hmm, I'm not quite sure. That's yeah, possibly. Um... Unless is it? Do Do you think it's supposed to be like any city? It might be New York, um, but I feel like it was filmed in Los Angeles, but maybe it's, you know, set in like a big American metropolis. But I was pretty sure that it set, that it was set 
it's one of those like it could take place in any big city but um my phantom fanatic friends could probably answer that question <laughs> oh right because you did this on your app your podcast mm-hmm. <laughs> where you brought on who did you bring on for that who are your guests so my three friends that i met um back in 2017 when cult musical started as a project for graduate school I met them via Facebook and they're in Canada, they're in Winnipeg, but they are the biggest Phantom of the Paradise fans in the world. And they're, they're actually the leaders of the Phantom Palooza, which is really what spearheaded the cult fandom of Phantom of the Paradise. Um, they're, they, they're married to the Phantom of the Paradise. They're devoted to it. Um, it happens every year in Winnipeg. Um, it's the subject of a new documentary called The Phantom of Winnipeg, but they're literally They've met the cast. The cast has come. Paul Williams has come. Jessica Harper has come to it. Paul Finley. So it's a huge deal in Winnipeg. And they're really the biggest fans of the parent. It's not like they're fans. They're literally fanatics. And they're, they really have, they're responsible really for, um, you know, Shop Factory and, and 20th Century Fox really putting out merchandise for fans of the paradise because they're really the ones that spearheaded the cult following. You know, no big deal or anything. <laughs> but they're so humble about it, you know. I w- I was reading that on IMDb that like this movie was a a flop when it came out, except for in Winnipeg. It wasn't a flop in Canada, actually. The soundtrack was so popular in Canada that it reached gold status, and it it was actually nominated Oscar. The soundtrack was, and it actually did. It ran for like fourteen to fifteen weeks in Winnipeg, so it actually wasn't a flop up there. Right. So um, Paul Williams, of course, attributed Winnipeg for saving Phantom of the Paradise. I mean, this movie is great. <laughs> I, I, I've seen it before, but it's been a while. And revisiting it, I was just like, this is this is amazing. Because like, unlike what any iteration of the Phantom of the Opera does, we get the backstory of the Phantom. Like, right. we see it. Um, it's not a story that could be false or whatever. We see what happens to, uh, crap, what's his name? Uh, Wilson, Winslow, sorry. Mm -hmm. Um, But I just, it's it's so wild. Like what happens to his voice? Does that get crushed in the record press? Yeah, like his voice is messed up, but he still has the ability to write music. And then he sees Phoenix and then it, you know, all goes on from there. Uh, I don't think they really mentioned that in the movie, or at least, I, at least I may have glossed over it for a second. That built in different ways. I mean, he gets basically. There's lots of things that happen, um, but you know, he's murdered, etc. So he comes back to life either supernaturally or just by the his, you know, by fate. But um, yeah. It w- <sighs> I'm sorry. This movie is just great, and I I'm at a loss of words right now because like it's so. 70s so rock and roll would you call this because i saw it somewhere i can't remember if it was imdb or wikipedia that they called this a rock opera would you call that would you classify it as uh, rock? no because well i would definitely consider it a rock and roll musical and a rock opera but usually rock operas are sang through so you know rape of the genetic opera doesn't really have any dialogue neither does jesus christ superstar or tommy so I think, you know, with rock operas, it's usually, you know, sung completely through. But it definitely has the ability to be a rock opera. I mean, Paul Williams has tried to, has been approached, according to my friends from 
Fantapalooza has been approached to adapt to the stage. So we'll see what's going to, I mean, probably it possibly would be a rock opera then with no dialogue, only I, sung through. I would, where do I send money? How do, who, I would love that. Like, um, the music in this, there uh, is amazing. And he wrote all of it. <laughs> Well, yeah, because Paul Williams is a really accomplished songwriter. You know, he wrote for The Carpenters. He wrote the Muppet movie music. He wrote Bugsy Malone's music. He wrote and, for other bands, too, at the yeah. time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, he's a really good songwriter. He won the Oscar. For this? No, 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 no. He was nominated oh. for an Oscar really for the song Evergreen. But, um, yeah, he um he's a really prolific songwriter. But Phantom, he always equates Phantom's second life so to speak because of winnipeg and thank you winnipeg uh your friends in winnipeg for all for our keeping this alive and then you too because your podcast and instagram page like post you post a lot about this about this movie and it's just like oh yeah they did they do have a fuck ton of bird references in this movie or (laughs) well as I talked about in the Rocky Horror episode and the Phantom Paradise episode, if you really want to talk about, because my particular pod, you know, podcast and blog deals with cult musicals, so movies that flop are bizarre and then sort of took on a life of its own. If you really want to argue about what makes a cult musical, like a movie that is very dark, twisted, unconventional, has a, devote, um, has a devoted cult following, um, Phantom of the Paradise preceded Rocky Horror by a year. So actually, Phantom of the Paradise is the very first cult movie musical. And the Phantom of the Paradise fanatics will tell you that it really was the very, it predated the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So Rocky Horror Picture Show gets a lot of credit as being like the queen of the cult movie musical. But if that, if you look at that on the same token, then Phantom of the Paradise is the king of the the cult musical. Because Phantom of the Paradise preceded by a year the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So it actually started having a cult following almost immediately. The Phantom I, of Paradise did. I feel like, because Rocky Horror gained its fame from the Midnight Movies. Yes, okay. so a few years after it was released in 1975, and then the Paradise was released in 74. This didn't do the Midnight Movies. Like, they didn't re-release this. So it didn't close in Canada. Oh, the shit. thing is it- it ran for months and months and months and months and it was extremely extremely profitable in Canada so much so that then of course it was discovered through Laserdisc and home video releases and horror films and especially Brian De Palma who's gone on to do other you know really trippy horror films and you know Jessica Harper did Shock Treatment and she did Suspiria um so through that it's sort of like new cult music like Rocky Horror fans etc are rediscovering phantom but the fan base of the fan of the paradise preceded rocky horror it's never stopped it's like the rocky horror picture shows never stopped in terms of playing in theaters fan of the paradise has never stopped playing in canada so like it's like the rocky horror equivalent but fan of the paradise really spearheaded and really started the spark of the whole midnight thing of the of the dressing up like your characters and stuff so fan of the paradise preceded the whole rocky horror shock treatment sort of wave because really Phantom was the first one to do it is it is there a reason why it's only only in Winnipeg that it I know it was just because it was it just caught on because Winnipeg's a really like isolated city and the the thing that 
they all have in common in Winnipeg is that it's a really music driven city. And according to my friends, you know, it just they thought that it was popular around the world. They didn't think that it was such a flop. It flopped everywhere in America, but it did so well in Winnipeg that it sort of spread throughout Canada, that's, even though it's an American. That's amazing. <laughs> I love the Rocky Horror Show, and I love its impact in, on society and culture, especially the cult. I mean, most people come into other cult movie musicals because of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. But if you look at really what started the cult musical fandom, it was Phantom of the Paradise. It was before Rocky Horror Picture Show. I haven't seen uh, images or, or videos from the, um, it's not a, is it a con, would you consider it a con that they do in, in, in nope, Winnipeg for this? It is a convention. They dress up, they have stalls. It is, okay. The, the surviving cast members come. So, yeah, so, like, with Rocky Horror, you know, Rocky Horror is based on the musical Rocky Horror show that played on stage. Yes. It was a moderate success in the UK and a a moderate success in the USA. But when the Rocky Horror Picture Show came out, it flopped. And it took a little bit before it started getting its midnight showings and all of that. And it took a little bit. But Phantom, like I said, never stopped playing. So it almost instantly got a cult following because the fans took the power in their own hands because... 20th Century Fox, like my friends will attest to, they didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know how to market it to Americans. They didn't know if it was a comedy. It was it a horror film. Was it a musical? They didn't know how to to market it. But Canadians in that particular city sort of took power back in their their own hands, and that they really made it to what it is today. I don't consider this a comedy by any means, even by like looking at it now. Well, there's definitely comedic value. You know, beef is hilarious. You know. Well, um, yes, 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 but like. Besides him being comedic relief. It's a combination think... of R, comedy, and musical, you know? It's a very dark comedy. For I was going to ask you if uh, Beef was queer-coded, but then the, they kind of answer it for you in the movie, where if you pay attention to his little dressing station, he has, like, a, a picture of a muscly guy on it. Yeah, but he also likes women. So I think the thing about the 70s is that, you know, a lot of the glam rock stars... Um, appeared to be queer on the outside, but you know, in the seventies, you know, Mick Jagger and David Bowie, they weren't gay, but they still were very flamboyant and very glittery and glamoury. Oh, interesting. But you know, David Bowie never identified as gay, and he even said, you know, bisexuality was just something he experimented with because everybody did it. But um, he said he was always a closeted home heterosexual. But um, everybody was, you know. Um, into that sort of the glint, the glitz and the glam. I think Beef could probably be bisexual, but I think it's it's sort of, he's definitely based on David Bowie and Mick Jagger and, you know, Alice Cooper and Gene Simmons and any of those glam rock stars, the sweet. Um, but I don't think his sexuality, I think it's just, because I mean, the thing about him is I think he's camp and glittery for the stage. But when he actually talks and sings, he's quite masculine. But when he he can sort of put on that baby sort of girly camp voice because he knows itself. It serves him purposes. Interesting. Cause I also you know, was, I also was just like in the scene between him and Philbin, I was just like, just, just go at each other, kiss or whatever. Like there was some sort of sexual tension between the two of them in, the, in his dresser room. <laughs> but there's definitely sexual tension between beef and women as well. I think it was just part of the whole thing of, you know, the free love sort of thing in the sixties and the seventies. So uh, to jump at, to jump to the end, basically, was there a reason why 
Swan wanted to kill Phoenix? Um, or what? I mean, I know he says like uh, a murder on live television would like be profitable in some ways, but like, was there a more nefarious reason for it, or was it just for the money? Possibly because of the money and the whole. Um, we can get into the the similarities between this cult musical and subsequent cult musicals, but you know, Swan can't die because he sold his soul as well, as we saw in it. Yes. So Phoenix did not sell her soul. So maybe there's a sense of resentment there as well that, you know, Phoenix is mortal while he and Winslow are immortal by very nefarious means. Um, but I think it just shows the, the wickedness and the cruelness of Swan. That's very similar. So on the podcast episode I really uh, recorded last week about rock and roll. Uh, if you've ever seen rock and roll, it's an animated cult musical. Debbie Harry play is in a voice actress in it. Lou Reed, Iggy pop. Um, you had me at Debbie Harry. So yeah, it's an animated cult musical, very adult, very um, gory at times, very sexual at times about these two innocent uh, rock uh, rock singers who get caught up in this record industry world and the record and record executive mock wants to use angel's voice play some the singing voices debbie harry because his her voice will give him power to reach immortality so there's that connection between that and swan and uh winslow leach and uh phoenix but also that whole trope of the record industry being evil also appears in the 1980 musical, The Apple. I was going to, I was going to say that this is Alfie and BB and Mr. Boogaloo. Uh-huh. So, um, and I, I brought upon that, I brought that, that whole question up to my Phantom fanatic friends. And they said, you know, the whole cautionary tale of the Phantom of the Paradise is that the record industry is very wicked and very evil. And the reason that that trope is repeated in, you know, rock and roll and the Apple is because a lot of people like Brian De Palma, they knew they had inside information about how wicked the the music industry is. I mean, Paul Williams is a perfect example. He's like one of the most pure and sane people in the record industry. So a lot of that whole uh, record executives being evil and almost satanic is actually not based on that much fiction. It's, it's basically based on facts of what the things people do to stay on top. So the mm-hmm. whole reason behind Phantom of Paradise and rock and roll and the Apple is that the record industry is evil. Would you say that the, not only this is the first cult musical, but also the first one to be a cautionary tale for the record industry? Yeah. And of course, you know, Jessica Harper, I argued on the podcast with my Phantom friends is that, you know, Jessica Harper, it wasn't, circumstance or just chance that Jessica Harper was chosen for Janet Majors in Shock Treatment because you know I think the producers they couldn't get Susan Sarandon which I, I think Susan Sarandon was is a great actress but I think she was very one-dimensional on Rocky Horror um but I think Janet I think Jessica Harper is a much better Janet um I think they chose her because of Phantom but also if you look at Phoenix and Janet Majors their arc similar they start off very naive and then they're oh. caught up you know, with Phoenix, it's the music industry. And with Janet Majors, it's the film, it's the TV industry. So Farley Flavors is one. And then they both have a similar moment where they're caught up into the fame. And then they come out of it and they realize it's all a, a trick of smoke and mirrors. 
Oh my goodness. That's <laughs> so like I asked them, my friends, they're my phantom fanatics, they're like, it's not, you know, it wasn't just it wasn't just chance that Jessica Harper was cast as Janet Majors. It's because Phoenix is basically the same as Janet Majors in shock treatment. I wish she would. What, uh, to your knowledge, was was uh, Jessica Harper in any more musicals besides the, yeah. these two? She, she was also in another infamous cult movie musical called Pennies from Heaven with Bernadette, Bernadette Peters and Steve Martin. Oh, she was in that. Yes. Yeah. Okay, because I, I feel like I like her singing voice. It, it, it has like a country Deep. twang to it a little bit. But yeah, it's very soulful. So Fan of the Paradise led to Pennies from Heaven, Pennies from Heaven, or Fan of the Paradise led to Shock Treatment, led to Pennies from Heaven. So do you have that whole, like, Jessica Harper then became a really prolific and award-winning children's artist, children's musical artist. And she released a lot of children musical albums. They're really sweet and beautiful. But yeah, so Janet, um, Jan- Jessica, Jessica's Janet and Jessica's Phoenix are basically the same character that goes with the exact same situations and the same character arts. Wow. I love that woman. (laughs) And she's acknowledged both shock. I mean, she's embraced. I think she embraced Phantom before she embraced shock treatment because it took shock years and years to get Rocky Horror fans to come along, to come like to go along with it. But Phantom, she appeared at the first Phantom Palooza in 2005. Um, So she embraced that. I think earlier than she embraced fan, uh, shock treatment, but now she's of course appeared at shock con at Rocky con with um, Clifty young who played Brad in shock treatment. So she's embraced that as well. But both films were terribly ahead of their time. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Cause when we were talking about um, shock treatment, uh, however many episodes ago, it was like the precursor to uh, reality television and like, yeah. And, like, that one was also a cautionary tale about television and everything. Um, so, Rocky, I do love the Rocky Horror Picture Show. You can't talk about music, cult musicals without talking about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I think Rocky Horror is not a cautionary tale. I think it's more of a free love sort of don't dream it, be it. I mean, that's per Richard O'Brien said that was the whole message of Rocky Horror was don't dream it, be it. Meaning whatever you want to be or whoever you want to be, be it. Um, but Phantom and shock, uh, shock treatment are very deep, and I think that's why it took a few tri- a few years and a few watchings for people besides Winnipeg for people to really get it, for people to really get it because you know Phantom of the Paradise was pre the whole Free Britney movement. It was pre the information of you know as my Phantom fanatic said, Prince being not being able to even use his own name in the nineties. He had to use the love symbol and the name, the artist formerly known as Prince because the record industry basically owns you. They own your name. And with Michael Jackson had similar issues with the music industry. I mean, if you want to go into detail, I mean, Michael Jackson even predicted that Sonny was going to murder him for his music catalog because he owned the Beatles music. Right. Yes. So Phantom of the Paradise was really came at a time, you know, the 50s and 60s and 70s and the 80s, et cetera, were really the time where the, the music industry became a huge mechanized system that literally bought and sold you. I mean, the Beatles don't even own the rights to their own music. They signed in like a back alley. So the fan meme, as I argued on the episode of the Fan of the Paradise, you know, 
the thing that makes Rocky Horror, you know, you have aliens, you've got cross-dressing aliens and all that. They're terrifying. But what makes Phantom and Shock Treatment so terrifying is that the villains in Shock Treatment and Phantom of Paradise exist in our own reality. I mean, mm-hmm. the television industry and the film industry and the music industry is very, very, very wicked. And yeah. Um, they're, yeah. I was going to say, but like this one has like a little supernatural element to it, but it's still like Swan is making these deals uh, or no, that is Swan, right? Yeah. He's just immortal. It's not like a demon went into he Swan's made, But he made a deal with someone. So it's like a, a ricochet effect. Right. But like, even when he's cartoonishly like wanting to um, uh, brick up the door that to trap in the fandom and everything, it's just like, n- no, he's making those decisions. And it's, it is very evil and like the way that he's just like make it your own who cares the guy died like whatever like i'm pretty sure there has there must have been a producer a a record producer at some point who said something similar to that if uh well i think paul williams you know he was a songwriter so he had to deal with that you know hands-on and then my phantom friend said you know brian de palma had heard rumblings of things happen in the music industry i mean about what people do to to get on top and stay on top, and the, the orgy scene. I mean, as as dubious and as disgusting as that is, that's not far and detached from reality. There's lots of movie stars and singers that have had to that had to do that, but they did that to get where they're at, and they're still doing that. I mean, yep. so it's not far fetched. But Phoenix yeah. to do it, you know. Yeah, the cat, the casting couch moment where Phoenix is like, no, I'm here to sing. I'm not here to <laughs> sleep with you. Um, but like, how did, <laughs> I, I had this stray thought while watching it. How did Winslow get into the orgy room? Well, he was on the top of the, he knew where, where Swan was. So. No, no, no. I mean, like when all the girls are there and his back is to the camera and then the um, Swan Okay. <laughs> okay. I I believe you. <laughs> I was I was just like, wait, he got kicked out. But how is he back at I Supernatural. Got it. Yeah. And so, you know, is Winslow is Winslow the villain? That's, you know, question you ask cuz he kills Beef, but you know, Beef is sort of a victim of circumstance. Vic- Beef's only d- Beef is a perfect example of those glitzy singers who actually don't write their own music. They're just provided music by the record industry. So Beef was an unwilling victim. Um, you know, he's, I think Beef was killed because Winslow was warning Swan, like, I've got your number, you know? So, but like, I don't, hmm, I'm a little conflicted because I wouldn't call uh, Winslow the villain of this movie. It's obviously yeah. Swan. But, yeah. but I wouldn't call him the hero either. So like, would you define him as an anti-hero if we had to define his character? I don't think there is a hero in this particular. I mean, same thing with Rocky Horror. It's like all the characters in Rocky Horror are immoral. And I think everybody in Trump Treatment is immoral except Brad. And J- Literally everybody in Trump Treatment is immoral except Brad, Janet. Um, and you have, of course, Oscar Drill in the bits. And you've got Betty and Judge Oliver Wright. But other than that, everybody in the film is immoral. And I don't think, you know, every film has to have a protagonist or an antagonist. I don't think that's necessarily true. 
um, like the movie Showgirls, there really isn't a protagonist or an antagonist. Everybody's immoral in the movie show, Showgirls, mm-hmm. which is seven yesterday. Um, but like, I don't necessarily think that every film has to follow the trope of having a hero and an anti-hero. I don't necessarily think every film has to follow that. Every work of literature doesn't necessarily have to have a hero because life's much more complicated than that. Because who knows what people would do if we're put in the situations. I mean, there's that argument, you know, everybody's moral until they're given an opportunity not to be moral. And even Phoenix has that moment in this movie. Janet Majors does. She for, she's like, you know, she forgets Brad. I mean, even there's a, a scene and a quote in a shock treatment where she's like, I'm tired of talking about that emotional cripple. I mean, you know? Right. And like, yeah. and like even in this one where she's like, the murderer is on the roof. Like, he ba- like the Phantom tells her, I'm Winslow. We met. We hugged, remember? Creepy. But um, she, she goes to Swan and is just like, the guy's on the roof. Get him, you know? So that proves that not everybody's, you know, I don't think every work of fiction has to have a hero or an anti-hero because I don't think, I don't know, I don't think, I think humans are much more complicated than that. Like if you've seen Reefer Madness, the movie musical, there really is no hero or anti-hero in that movie. That's true. Yeah, because in the end, they end up, you know, setting themselves up for disaster because they believe the lie of, you know, Reefer makes you. A zombie and a cannibal and a sex fiend. <laughs> um, to go back to beef for a hot second, I know he was his demise. He eventually was set on fire, but was he electrocuted? Is that what yeah, we're supposed he to? Okay, because <laughs> I was just like that lightning bolt was clearly very far behind you. So and I just the audience ate it up. And that's the that's the other thing too about this movie, where it's like the audience. Um, it, it it's also running with the theme like it's all part of the show. People don't yeah. ooh, yeah. Because like I when mean, they yeah when they murder Swan on stage during the wedding, like some guy is he is he part of the Juicy Fruits? No, I don't. There was some some extra who grabbed like something and started stabbing Swan too and then like he was covered in blood and he put the blood on some other woman and I was just sitting there like this is wild but you know in most probability you have to think if that would have happened in real life how many of the audience would leave or how many audience would pull their phone out and record that's the that's the ungodly truth of humanity humans like to see train wrecks right and the same thing happened in Repo Reaper the Genetic Opera, oh. where, where, the, um, yeah, when uh, Sarah Brightman gets killed and then you know, Nathan gets killed. Yeah. And, uh, and the audience is just like, oh my God, this is amazing. Same thing also in Moulin Rouge. <laughs> I'm not a massive fan of the film, but yes. But you know what I mean? Like, there, yeah, when he the, dies and all. Yeah. So, wow. I, I wonder though if that was, if this movie was all like, if this movie was also the first one to do that trope where it was like the musical wise. Yeah, I do believe. Um, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Jesus Christ superstar predated phantom and then Godspell predated phantom, but their whole cult status and Tommy predated phantom, but it took, I think, you know, it was like a leapfrog effect. I think phantom came in terms of cult then Rocky Horror, and then, you know, others 
sort of, you know, discovered other cult movie musicals, you know, Yellow Submarine, The Wiz, etc. But um, I'm talking about 70s. But then, you know, I think Phantom really is the first cult movie musical, as in cult movie musical being obscure, um, resurrected by a, a devoted fan base, dressing up, midnight showings. That was Phantom. Jesus Christ Superstar fanatics and God's Buff fanatics and Rocky Horror fan fanatics weren't doing it at the same time as Phantom. Phantom really was the first one to do it. Well, Godspell and Jesus Christ Superstar also had the stage crowd. Right. And, fan, did, but... and Rocky Horror, I guess, also had a stage crowd following because they're... Mm. It, it, Rocky Horror flopped pretty bad in the States when it came on the, the in Los Angeles with the Roxy cast. It did okay. Elvis Presley apparently went to it quite a few times because he was he thought it was so good but uh, <laughs> yeah Elvis was actually cooler than people give him credit for um but yeah but in terms of like a movie really starting that whole midnight viewing dressing up as the characters it was Phantom oh but like um I was also asking like if was Phantom the first one the first movie to do that trope of like it's all part of the show you know, like oh yeah, I get what you're saying. Probably the first movie musical. Probably yeah. Okay, so this movie has <laughs> has yep. a lot of like like a lot of other movies should be like thanking this one for doing things. And I asked this question of my Phantom fanatics. I was like, you know, the thing with like the whole TikTok generation and you know Rocky Horror Con, a lot of people are discovering Phantom. They're like, oh, let's do Shadowcast, etc. I'm like. What do you guys want from Phantom? Like, what do what do what else do you want from Phantom? Do you want more merchandise? Do you want Hot Topic and other those, other those you know those other like you know Shout Factory and Arrow Video? Do you want other and you know Fear Tees etc. to sort of get their claws in it and start you know commercializing it? And like the Phantom fan said, it has remained unchanged with us. We don't care what other, you know, industries do with it, et cetera. But I mean, it's completely, it's never stopped for them. And you know that now that Disney owns Fox, it owns Rocky Heart and Phantom. And, um, oh my God, it does. Yeah. So if Disney didn't even release it on Blu-ray. It had to be, it was Shop Factory that released it on Blu-ray. So I think we're going to see the problem with that is I think there's going to be a pushback in terms as you've seen with Disney Plus, and I mean, Rocky Horror Picture Show is over here in the UK on Disney Plus, but it's very buried underneath. So I think it's, um, I think we're going to see a time now. I mean, Shop Treatment still has never seen a US Blu-ray DVD or Blu-ray release. It's only been released here in the UK. Really? So it's, yeah, Shop Treatment is owned by Disney now. So oh. I think the problem with, I think the whole legacy of what's going to happen now is the fans, especially in Winnipeg and around the world, are going to keep Phantom alive and Rocky Horror alive. Because you can't leave it up to the studios anymore because, you know, Disney is really big on burying titles now and also censorship. But I don't think Phantom and Rocky Horror and Shock Treatment fit into their Disney brand. Mm, Yeah, which is unfortunate. It is. And I love Disney but I don't, when I heard that they acquired 20th Century Fox, um, I was like, what does that mean for Phantom and Shock Treatment and Rocky Horror? And it proves my point that they've tried to bury films and it's got to be up to independent studios like Shock Factory and Arrow Video, et cetera, to release 
subsequent to do merchandising for Phantom, Shocky, and Rocky because um, Disney won't do it. Uh, so you mentioned earlier that Paul Williams was thinking, right? Paul Williams? Yeah. Yeah. Um, was thinking about doing a stage version. Are you, would you, are you, uh, uh, would you like to see that? Or are you like, yeah, this is, absolutely. this is fine. No, um, Phantom fans are massively interested in that because the good thing about that particular film is Paul Williams owns all the rights to the music because he wrote it. Like Richard O'Brien, when he adapted Shock Treatment for the stage over here in the UK, he was able to do that because he owned all the rights to his own music. So that's sort of like a loophole for to get out of it. You know, Grease 2, they officially slash unofficially had a stage version in the UK called Cool Rider. It's because the writers of the music over here put it on stage without calling it Grease 2. But I don't think Disney really gives a damn. I don't think Disney would stop him from, and because he's so well-known and he's such an accomplished, um, you know, songwriter that has so many accolades, I don't think there's any rights issues with him putting on stage. But I think, I think it's just, as um, I think it's basically him trying to figure out where to put it, you know, would it do better in LA? Do better on off Broadway? Of course, it would probably go in Canada first because it would make so much money in Canada. Right. I feel like mm, I feel like it would it, it would serve like Little Shop better off Broadway than on Broadway or like even like is it called like off West End or there's not off? No, yeah, there is off West End here. Yeah, there's definitely off West End. Um, yeah, because but um. Cole Rider was on West End. Now, Shock Treatment was off West End because Shock Treatment was, when I saw it, it was on the King's Head Theater. So it was off West End. It wasn't, and then, you know, Taboo, which was Boy George's musical, was off West End and then it went to West End, whatever. Um, but the good thing about over here, it's like there people don't look at musicals over here as like, oh, off West End, like off Broadway, you know, off Broadway kind of has a stigma as being kind of more experimental are not good enough for Broadway, but there's not that stigma over here in the UK of like, oh, it's off West End, you know? But I think you have to know the market. I think Phantom would do really, really well in Canada. And I think if it does, I know it will do well in Canada. It could then, I would never put it on Broadway because I feel like Broadway tarnishes musicals. It does, yes. I feel like you need a venue that can be like the paradise in a way. Yeah. It's even though it's an American film, I don't think it would ever do well in America. Like Shock Treatment would have never done well in the States, nor would have Cool Rider. But it's done well. There's like niche markets for like so even though, you know, Shock Treatment is a co British, co American film, and then Grease Two is an American film, they did really well over here in the UK. Versus Phantom being an American film, it's doing well, really well in Canada still. So I think it would be better. I mean, I don't think America is that things just don't do well in America. Sometimes I think America's so backwards in terms of what it accepts. Right. Or, or there's like, there is a fan base, but like, it's very neat where it's so spread yeah. out. Yeah. But like, well, defi- yeah. definitely needs to go to Winnipeg. <laughs> oh, that's definitely one of the, probably the first places that will go. Yeah, I will go to Winnipeg to see the stage version of this and show. And it will do incredible there. I mean, it will do absolutely incredible there. It will make a ton of money. Um, yeah, it's very, it's, 
it's great that a lot of these cult musicals, both off screen and on screen, do well in other markets. But it's a shame that, you know, the places that it comes from, like the USA, still don't embrace them. You know, like Boy George's musical Taboo did extremely well in the UK. And then it went to the USA and flopped because it was too queer and it was too racy. And then finally it came back to the UK and it had a 30th anniversary, a 20th anniversary concert and sold out three nights in a row. And it's like, you know, it's just like, I think, you know, as progressive as America likes to think of our media, if you compare our media to Canadian media and like, I don't know how I got on this rant or UK (laughs) media, we're still super conservative of what we'll show and what we'll do and we'll embrace. Look at Disney Plus, the difference between Disney Plus UK and Disney Plus USA. It's completely different. USA still super, super censor stuff. And I think that's why Disney over in the States, the Rocky Horror Picture Show will never be on Disney Plus in the USA. Really? Okay. No, I can see that. I can see that just because. I ever be. I don't think Disney really cares. Like Shock Treatment, the full movie is streaming on YouTube. Somebody uploaded it and Disney has not taken it down. I don't think Disney really cares about these cult musical masterpieces. I don't think, because I don't think they want to put any time or funds into it. And I think that was, it's such a shame that Disney bought 20th Century Fox. Disney owns everything though at this point, it seems like, so. That's the only thing they can't get their hands on is DC. (laughs) Yet. Yet. Um, did we actually talk about this movie? <laughs> I know we talked around the movie, but like, is there anything? This movie's very intellectually deep and it opens up so many questions about morality and about Phantom's great. But I think the thing about Phantom, is not just goofy like the apple or grease too. I mean, it's very like, it's very deep. And I think there's more power behind what makes it what it is versus the plot itself. Because the plot's very predictable. But what makes it so special is the things that revolve around it, you know? Yeah. And and like I said, I really, I, I liked Brian De Palma's treatment of the Phantom of the Opera story. Yeah. Where we got to, we got to see like the shit that uh, Winslow has to go through in yeah, order. And- yeah. It's, uh, uh, and he's up, but like, he's also. What I don't think is talked about much about Phantom, the Andrew Lloyd Webber, or even the novel, is that the Phantom is kind of a creeper. I don't believe he's a creeper in this movie. I think Winslow is actually a um, a Phantom that you feel for. Right. He's, I mean, like when he's Winslow at the beginning, when especially when he's on the line and he first meets Jessica Harper, I was getting a little like creeper vibes there. Not necessarily that he was a full-blown stalker yet, because that's what he turns to later. But, like, you know, they he meets her, he sings with her, and then they hug. And I'm just like, straight. I mean, 70s were also a different time than 2022. So there was, no, there was no stranger danger involved. Let me tell you something. So, you know, Phantom of Paradise predates Phantom of the Opera on Broadway and the yes. West End. Yes, but not the not but not the novel. You know that Andrew Loeber not only reuses his own music, but he's actually been like called out for stealing other people's music as well. If you listen to old souls, it sounds just like and somebody on YouTube actually did a Max a Misha a Mac a Mish. What am I talking about? I feel like I'm speaking Yiddish. <laughs> a, mashup. Um, a mashup. 
of on the piano of old souls with the intro to phantom and it sounds like angela angela weber was very inspired by paul williams old souls which phoenix sings well there's also another version of the phantom of the opera just called phantom that uh predates phantom of the opera the angela Lloyd weber um and there's a lot of musical moments in the story that clearly was lifted from oh, that to the to the Lloyd Webber one. So yeah, yeah, no, no, I know that Andrew Lloyd Webber. He's very Machiavellian. He he steals a lot, but he's never been caught. But who's because who's dares go to go against Sir Angela Webber? Would you call Andrew Lloyd Webber Swan? I would call Angela Webber Swan, and also um, Farley Flavors. <laughs> I yes. would. I mean, Paul Williams yes. is very original. I'm surprised Paul Williams, I think Paul Williams is too nice of a guy to call out Angela Weber because once you have like a machine behind you like Angela Weber has, it's almost impossible to go against them. Well, it's also like, um, you, you've heard the controversy about Vanilla Ice and um, Queen. Yeah, Under Pressure. Yeah. So just because he added that one note, he made it different. So I feel right. like Angela Weber, if he added like, one phrase that was just like slightly different it's it's quote unquote a different song but yeah no i could i i heard i talked about the film but we actually have because i mean the film is basically paul williams's life of like being such a prolific songwriter and being taken advantage of and being passed over i mean phantom basically is paul williams and he plays Swan. I think Paul Williams plays Swan and is involved in this picture because he knows firsthand how evil the record industry is. Yes. I also read, though, that uh, the guy that played Beef, Garrett uh-huh. Graham, I believe I'm pronouncing his name incorrectly, but um, he mentions that there was like a musical chairs with casting. And this is on the IMDb trivia page where Paul Williams was originally cast as winslow peter boyle was beef and graham was swan but then like peter boyle couldn't do it and i guess paul williams was like this is too much like my life um i don't know if any of this is true though because there's another fact later on that is like brian de palma wrote this for um for william fidley in mind and it's like i don't know i don't know what to believe but i just wanted to throw that out there my friends could tell you. I'm not quite sure. Um, but yeah, Paul Williams, I mean, same thing with Bugsy Malone. Bugsy Malone did really, really bad in the USA, but it's so popular in the UK that like um, high schools and middle schools and elementary schools perform Bugsy Malone all the time over here. Is that the one where the kids are like yeah, mobsters? Gangsters. gangsters? Yeah. I haven't done it yet. If anyone's listening and wants to do it. <laughs> Hello. I love my- Jodie Foster's first movie. Scott Bayo's first movie. Oh, that is Jodie Foster's first movie. Uh, James, is there anything else you want to talk about before we get into Sharp and Flat? Nope. All right, let's do it. Sharp Flat. So in this section, we're going to highlight some moments, whether or not we talked about it. If we liked it, it's sharp. And if we didn't like it or thought it could change, it's flat. And you know what? I want to hand it in a high note because we were giving so much love to this movie. So let's start with flats. Um, Do you have any flats 
I don't think I have any flat. I think the only song that I kind of like zone out in is when I think it's the Juicy Fruits and they sing like the Beach Boys inspired song. Other than that, when they're on the stage with the, you know, the... Is that with the bomb? <laughs> where they're like at the beach and there's, you know, waves and all of that. That's the only song that I basically zone out in. Oh, I think it's called Upholstery. That's the one yeah. where, the, where the fandom sends the bomb off in the car. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so good. Um, I flatted the casting couch because, like, no, we don't like this. Um, and, like, I originally wrote down Winslow meeting Phoenix, but after talking with you, it kind of isn't that much of a flat-worthy thing. It's just a little off for me. How's that? It's not a flat, but it's just, I just want to be like, it's a little off. Um, And like, you know, there are things that I was going to flat about Swan, but like, no, that's character building for Swan. Um, Like you, you have to, we have, they build him as the, like, I know you said that every story doesn't need a hero and a villain, but like they build him as the villain and we're supposed to not like him. So uh, there we go. Uh, What are your sharps then? I think anything, I think Jessica Harper is the sharp of this film. I think she's got such a beautiful voice. I think Special to Me and Old Souls are incredibly beautiful, especially Old Souls. Old Souls is a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous song. Mm -hmm. Um, I agree with you, with her. Um, (laughs) I actually sharp the upholstery scene just because it's, I I I like I know you don't like it, but I like I liked it that it was a split screen. I liked yeah. that um seventies. Yes. There was the conversations going over the songs. Like there were elements to it that I was just like, this is fascinating and it doesn't happen really. And also this is uh a lot a lot of a lot of the this movie and behind the scenes in this movie are like a precursor to Carrie. So yes. so um and De Palma to Carrie. Right. And Sissy Spacek apparently worked on a, a day in this movie as a set dresser. Can I tell you something that I learned from my Phantom friends? Yes. Jessica Harper actually wasn't selected for this film. She actually beat out a lot of actresses, including Linda Ronstadt. I did read that, yes. <laughs> I didn't even know that. Um, I am sharpening also um, Swan's record desk. I want it. Um, the what I said oh my god yes yes so big Um, also (laughs) I love the fact that his goons are like bikers I don't I don't know why with the with the football makeup on very weird I'm here for it though Um, and also I'm gonna sharp beef everything about him (laughs) what was that (laughs) like like him being introduced in a coffin, him wearing a Santa jacket when he's running away, like the the little makeup that he does on his cheek, like ev- everything about him, I loved it. But you know what I just thought about? You know, he's very butch on stage, but when you meet him, he's like, what was that? You know, I think maybe that's the sort of nod to like the closeted singers in the 70s who were butched up on stage for for super big queens. You know, Rock Hudson was a huge queen. Right. Maybe, maybe, and you know, this is before Freddie Mercury was out. So maybe that's a nod to sort of like the closeted people as well. 
yeah, that's that's why I was just like, I don't know if he he made. I feel like, pardon, he's confused. Well, I was gonna say maybe he's like, uh, more like a like a pansexual, but like into people who are into him. Oh, like a a, like sycophants. He likes people who like go to him. Like he likes groupies. Like, like I like this quote that Margaret Cho says in one of her stand-up specials. She's like, I'm not bi, I'm I. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. So but, you what? Oh, so vain? Right, but like, the, into people who are into him. Doesn't care who or what they are, just as long as they're into him. That's all he wants. Um, we love- <laughs> uh, is there, what songs would you add to your life's playlist from this movie? old souls because i'm an old-fashioned romantic and i really do believe in like you know people in past life sort of thing and i think that song is so beautiful because the whole message of that song is like i knew you before and i'll know you again and i'll recognize you in this life because i'm meant to find you and you're meant to find me i'm not trying to get weepy and mushy but i love that song and its message it's like whoever you're meant to meet you've met them before and you will meet them in each lifetime plus she's like so it sounds so natural like there's no like modern day auto-tuning or like a cacophony of sound behind her it's just her singing and that right and her voice you know stops the audience in their tracks there's something about just you know my niece is named phoenix by the way oh after this movie she's named after x-men ah damn it (laughs) (laughs) um i copped out and i just said the whole all the music from the movie. Now I know the album doesn't have never thought I'd get to meet the devil and the first Faust reprise, but like I would, I, I would listen to any musical moments from this movie because <laughs> it sounded so. And that it hit gold um, Canada and it was nominated for an Oscar. Because <laughs> uh, like, you get a little bit of everything in this. You get the Beach Boys, you get the 50s rockabilly, you get uh, the ballad, the, or the 11 o'clock ballad number, um, and you also get a lot of 70s stuff. So I'm here for oh, yeah. all of this. Um, and on that note, James, we're done with the episode. We, <laughs> we did it. We talked about the music industry and how much of a bad thing it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is there anything you'd like to plug or promote? No, um, we look forward to having you on subsequent episodes. So, yeah. Oh yeah, I'll- I was on your best little whorehouse in Texas episode. Ooh, yeah, <laughs> you were absolutely. Texas has a whorehouse in it. Lord have mercy on souls. <laughs> um, where can they? Well, so your podcast is more like a visual podcast on YouTube video. So Cult Musicals is the Instagram, and Cult Musicals Zone is the weekly discussion from cult musical fans from all over the world as we discuss the legacy of one of our favorite cult movie musicals. I'm so, so you can visually on YouTube. Mm-hmm. It's so, it's it's great. Um, unfortunately, on our episode, we had little technical difficulties trying to get that back, the little whore, the chicken ranch. <laughs> but y'all did. I did. You did it. Yes. I don't know why. My computer just didn't like us. Um, and if you want to Talk more about Fan of the Paradise with me. You can email me at buttersongpod at gmail.com. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at buttersongpod. Um, 
do, do you know Paul Williams? <laughs> Can you tell us if he's actually writing the musical? <laughs> I I will ask my Phantom fans, but I did hear. I remember before Phantom and Shock Treatment really took off in the states when I was a little gay boy, fifteen. Jessica Harper was so nice by me messaging messaging her in her email, and I didn't get a response one time, so I kept sending the same email over and over again and she's like i think i've heard from you before thank you so much for your kind words always remember to wear your little black dress (gasps) oh my god (laughs) i'm so happy for that (laughs) we're here (laughs) and if you want to be part of next episode's conversation we're going to be talking about labyrinth speaking of bowie (laughs) uh james thank you so much um we I know we kind of planned one during this episode. If you want to, if you want to do Bugsy Malone, I guess we'll figure out a future date for that. And then thank you, everyone. Bye for now. Special thanks to Justin Johnson for creating the podcast's artwork, and to Nick Bombasino for composing the theme song and the jingles in this podcast.